Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. I have chosen to speak today about changing minds, changing hearts. As so many things are happening these days, creating stress and divisions on so many levels, whether in regard to the political realm or on the issue of vaccines or whatever, you name it, there are so many entrenched positions, and there are big debates about what is right to do about any of it. The difficulty of changing other people's minds seems to be what's up today. From the people on the street or in the countryside to those on the Supreme Court, we are of many minds, and some of us are losing heart. I have hardly known how to create a podcast for some time now to find words to say anything. Much has been written and said, some valuable, some exhaustingly redundant about everything. What can I add that would be useful? I've been humbled by all the heartbreak and outrage and passion on all sides of so many things these days. What do I know? What can I say that is helpful. I finally realized I have only my own experiences that I can honestly speak about. But I'm old and I've had a lot of experiences, so I've decided to reflect on some of those with you. I'll tell you here at the first that I'm not going to try to change your mind about anything. I'll just tell you some of my own experiences that may be meaningful. Let me begin when I was young. I remember well a heated discussion I was involved in when I was in high school, a discussion about race, civil rights. Our math teacher had encouraged the discussion since the integration of schools had only recently been ordered. Ours was an all-white school in a pretty impoverished rural area of East Texas. There were only 21 people in our senior class, and that day, everyone wanted to talk at once. I was so animated in getting my own views across that I remember I was actually standing up and looking down at the person I was arguing with who was seated next to me, a boy I had known for most of my life who was usually a quiet person but who was just then unexpectedly disagreeing with me firmly about those he called negras. He called them that, at least in the classroom. He probably called them the other N-word outside of class. Finally, I said to him loudly, my face no doubt red with passion, they are as good as we are. He looked up at me, standing there over him, glaring at him. And he said in his usual drawl, They may be as good as you are, but they aren't as good as I am. I remember the reaction of the rest of the class. They laughed as his rejoinder had been clever. I remember, too, that the teacher cut off the discussion, saying something like, Okay, now the debate has gone from ideas and facts to getting personal and opinionated. And that's just what we want to try to avoid. But here's the thing I want to emphasize today. 
what I really remember very well is how embarrassed I was at being laughed at and how angry and self-righteous I felt and how frustrated that I could not convince him to change his mind. I had only, it seemed, hardened his heart and made him firmer in his own point of view. And a division had opened up between us that hadn't been there before. I thought long and hard about that. That's why I still remember it, I guess, all these years later. Perhaps I learned something my teacher was trying to get across to us. I realize now that neither of us was listening very much to the other, really. And our own still-forming identities and our fragile senses of self-esteem had come to rule the discussion. Our personal histories, the stories our families had told or acted upon, the ways we had experienced the world had shaped each of us. And there was a deep emotional content to this issue. It wasn't only a reasonable debate about morals, about right and wrong, however much I felt that it was. Something else, something personal, was at stake, as my teacher recognized. I don't know what my opponent's family's story was, but somewhere inside of me was the unpleasant knowledge that several branches of my family had once owned slaves, bought and sold slaves, some even traded in slaves. I'd felt bad about that ever since I had heard about it as a child. Had felt bad even though I knew too that the Civil War had resulted in great loss for my family financially and personally to every branch of my family tree. Now in my family tree there are also abolitionist Quakers and Native Americans and who knows what else. I've now learned that one of my great-grandfathers was killed in a fight in a heated argument about the Civil War, and I'm not yet clear what side he fought on. I didn't know that at the time of my classroom argument, but did any of my family's story, consciously or unconsciously, that had entered into me through all my life, did it enter into my sense of hopeless frustration and self-righteous outrage that I aimed at my usually quiet fellow student? Did his opposition to integration of schools have something to do with his family's story, whatever it was? At any rate, to change opinion for either of us would have felt like more than just backing down. It struck at the heart of something deep in us. To change our minds would feel like a loss of something basic, a sense of self, of personal dignity and honor, our family's honor or dishonor. Honor meant something once in my part of the country. I grew up knowing well the expression, a man's word is his honor. And so to insist that someone was wrong and didn't know what he was talking about could provoke a fight, and to call someone a liar was possibly to get yourself shot. My mother had admonished me all my life, never, ever call someone a liar. You can, she said, say no to them. I don't agree with you, or I'm not sure you have all the information or all the facts, but you don't call them a liar, 
or speak about someone as being a liar, that would be challenging their sense of honor and self-respect and would make them afraid of what other people in the community would think of them. It would be dangerous, she said. That was back then. How shocked I was only a few years ago when a congressperson shouted out, Liar! during the address of a president of the United States. Fear, real fear, entered my heart at that moment for what would happen, for what we had come to in our country. I've often been wrong, and I've often had to change my opinion or my view of things. It isn't always or even usually easy. We cling to our ideas, our opinions, our behaviors, our mindsets for many reasons. Our family's history is one, as I said. I once worked in Washington, D.C. and shared an office with a fine man from Japan for whom I developed great respect. One day, when I asked him some questions, he began to, to talk about what it had been like in Japan after the Americans dropped the atomic bomb, what it was like for his family. Personal stories, heartbreaking stories, he told. The bomb itself, the blast, the shock, the smoke and cratering of matter, the devastation and horrific deaths, the fear, the helplessness, the loss of everything, people, land, hope, honor. Suddenly listening to him, I felt something shift inside of me. He wasn't trying to convince me of anything to, or to justify Japan's actions in the war. He only talked about it because I asked. I had grown up listening to my stepfather's stories of the Second World War when he fought in the Philippines against the Japs, as he called them. That, too, had been horrific, he said. And I had been schooled to be aware of what the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese was like, the horror there, the death. My cousin served in the Navy later, and to think how he could have been there in Pearl Harbor, it was wrong, and we were right to fight back. I knew that growing up. What I didn't know until that day in my office was what it was like to be an ordinary citizen in Japan whose experiences were the result of decisions made by their government over which they had had no control. My office mate in telling his own stories touched my heart, moved me deeply, not in a place of debate over right and wrong, but in a place of more universal compassion. The work we were both doing right then in our employment at the time, long after the war, was to improve relations between our two countries. It was good for me to have to re-examine my own point of view, my own given perspective about that war and about the Japanese people in general, as he had to do about America, about Americans, in order to be my friend, to work with me and trust me and invite me to his home. We each had to make personal and heartfelt connections for real change to occur in our mindsets. 
and that change did not negate who or what I or my family or his had been in the past. It only broadened and made more open-minded my own sense of reality. I didn't even know then much about the American government's actions in the internment of the Japanese Americans in my own country during that war, how those people were assumed to be and were treated as enemies, those American citizens, to their great humiliation and loss. In so many ways, were any of them Japanese spies living in our midst, as was feared, as our government asked? Would those people, because of their previous nationality or their ethnicity, act now against this country? Would they be patriots of the U.S. or Japan? Well, let's not take chances. Let's just lock them up. Later, those in power in our government would decide that the internment and taking away the rights of the Japanese-American citizens had been wrong, unfortunate. I wonder what our government or some of our citizenry would do these days. I think I know, judging from recent events. I do know many American men who had fought in that war, who refused for the rest of their lives to buy a Japanese car or anything that said made in Japan. Japan had been our enemy. Japanese soldiers had killed our soldiers, threatened our homeland. As I heard one of my uncles say, they killed my buddy right next to me, blew him apart right before my eyes. This was said during a big debate my several uncles were having about whether or not to vote for Eisenhower. I was young, but I remember the passion in each of their voices. They disagreed strongly. They and their families had for generations been Democrats. Eisenhower was a Republican. Most of my uncles were going to stay Democrats, they said, but one uncle said, I don't care if we've always been Democrats. Eisenhower led us in the war against the Japs, and I'm sure going to follow him now. There was a long pause. Then I heard another uncle say, with another kind of emotion in his voice, something beyond politics. Yeah, the Japs, their, their soldiers did all that. Like you said, Pearl Harbor, awful stuff. I saw it too. Hated the sons of bitches, but you never saw what my squad did to their women and children who were hiding there in those islands, hiding in caves, holding their little kids. What I did in fear, in revenge, I guess, or or because I was told to do it. And his voice had stopped then, and he walked away. He had nightmares the rest of his life. He wouldn't debate about the war or talk about it anymore. His heart could not participate in a mental debate about right and wrong, about Eisenhower or no Eisenhower. His personal, heartfelt humanity took him over and almost broke him through the years, I have to say. Personal stories. Stories from the heart. When we hear them, we are changed. 
we are broadened. We move beyond debate over ideas and, and into heartful territory, knowing each other, knowing each other's stories can make us friends, even when we disagree. I remember once when I was in college, a friend of mine and I were on the way to his house one night after some event or other. A bunch of our friends were, were meeting at his house to hang out, listen to music, and so on. But my friend, who was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative Republican, whose father was in the oil business, and I, who was not a conservative, got into a big political debate on the way to his house. And so when we arrived there, he, he just kept talking, and we kept sitting there after he turned off the engine, and I kept answering back to what he said. When the other people arrived, my friend just rolled down the window and, and gave our friends the house keys, and they went on in the house, and soon we heard music and laughter from inside. But we two just kept talking. Yes, but on the other hand, and so forth. I don't know how long that went on or what the other people thought that we were out there making out, maybe. But we weren't. We were doing something else. We both enjoyed examining ideas, exchanging opinions, and being open-hearted enough to expand our own insights without getting angry or insulting. We were friends. We could disagree and still care for each other. When we finally wore out, <laughs> realizing that the party had happened without us, we just laughed together. And I remember my friend said to me, Ah, Fuller, that was my, my name then, Fuller, you are indeed a worthy opponent. Worthy opponent. When I worked in Washington, D.C., our Congress people treated each other as worthy opponents. People who opposed each other strongly still prefaced their comments about each other, saying, the gentleman from Oklahoma or wherever, the gentleman or gentle lady, respect, honor, dignity due to the person because of the office they held, as a representative of the people, worthy opponents would and did disagree about many things. They were expected to do so, to flush out all the unexamined aspects of whatever was being debated. They were expected to use means of persuasion that aimed to consensus to finally actually get good things done. Compromise was expected though freedom of speech was lively. Freedom of speech was understood generally to mean that you were free to speak the truth and even your own opinion, but you were not free to deliberately misrepresent the truth, to slander or commit libel and get away with it. A free press and concerned individuals and the courts were to see to it that justice and liberty and freedom were not abusive, that individual liberty and freedom of speech carried individual responsibility. Without all that, anyone can say or do anything and get away with it, or without freedom of speech, 
anyone can be punished, even violently, for speaking their own opinions or for telling the truth. That's been the case throughout much of history. Jesus was crucified on a cross, for example, in part for stating his opinions and acting peacefully in opposition to some of the ingrained ways of those in power at that time. Crucifixion, of course, was not unique to Jesus. Many died that way. It was a Roman means of capital punishment. Capital punishment, of course, is another subject that has long been debated. Once I was asked by a Native American man, I didn't even know if I would be present at at his execution to say prayers for some crime he had been convicted of and still said he was not guilty of. I trembled at the thought of how I would do that, how I would feel to be present there in that situation. I was prepared to do so, but he got a stay of execution and got transferred to another state, and I lost track of him, but whatever his crime or innocence, I've held him in my heart ever since because of the way I felt, because of the way I felt in that situation. I worked at a university years ago, a university whose very mission statement said that lively debate about ideas was part of a democracy and that part of the university's purpose was to foster critical thinking and democratic debate. And there was a lot of lively debate at that university among students and professors and all of us during that time. Capital punishment was one day the subject of debate in a discussion group I was part of at the university. When our conversation got particularly heated, a chaplain asked us, our whole group, to follow him from the room where our debate had been going on, to follow him into the chapel. And there we saw that he had done a remarkable thing. He had taken down the Christian cross out of the chapel and put in its place a large image of an electric chair, an instrument of capital punishment in our time. He had taken us from our debating minds to somewhere else. The story had taken on new dimensions. The implications had been broadened somehow. We had all heard about Jesus' suffering days before the crucifixion, even about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that if it be possible that his death not come to pass, someone in our group had quoted that scripture. Now we were brought into our own time, into our own complexity of situations. We were even faced with the thought, how would it feel for anybody to be facing being electrocuted, guilty or not? How do we decide who gets to live or die? Who gets to decide? Who gets to pardon? When? Why? Abortion rights activists on both sides of the issue ask that question too, and they have a right to do so, to ask the question, to debate, discuss, convince, persuade, all in good faith, but without violence. 
violence against persons or property is illegal, not legally allowed. And furthermore, I want to say, violence, violent acts, violent speech tends to harden hearts instead of changing minds about anything. I keep realizing that. Right and wrong. So many shadowy slants on things. Are we correct to have a so-called cancel culture or a whitewashed history? And anyway, what part of history was previously already canceled or whitewashed all through the years? What part of history was taught or left out? To whom? To what end? Truth. Truth-telling. It's sometimes a tough quandary. And how do we decide when and how truth-telling interferes with or encourages a change of heart and thus of mind? When, as is said, we've been quiet long enough, how then, in what manner, do we speak up or act up, using truth not as a weapon, but as a tool to successfully convince others of our position or our need or our right so that change is accomplished. How, I ask myself, how do we do that successfully? We all certainly have a need to feel that our sense of reality, whatever it is, is true and correct. This stabilizes us in our world. It connects us to family, community, culture, to everything. We cling to that stability, I think, and to change things even to change our minds, can threaten that sense of stability and security. To change our minds and attitudes about some things, things that may be generations deep, unconsciously inherited or adopted, involving strong emotions, changing our minds about those things can also, we may fear, actually sever our relationship to others, to family, to church, or community, and even to our own feelings about ourselves, our own history. It is never easy to have to look honestly at our shadow or the shadow of our nation or our religion or whatever. These things are heart deep, and it is only at a heart level that they can shift and broaden rather than negate and violate a healthy sense of self. How then can we convince others to change their minds, to broaden their minds, while they retain a healthy sense of self? I remember once when I was leading a weekend workshop and was giving a presentation about women's history, and I gave some very vivid examples of violence and injustice against women throughout history and even in the current time. During the break, a young man in the group sat quietly alone, I went up to him and and he looked at me and he said, hearing all that, I feel ashamed of being a man. That, of course, was not my intent. In the next session, I changed my agenda and we all discussed that, his statement, his feelings, discussed how change can come about that leaves all of us with both ongoing self-respect and a sense of responsibility to see that correct change occurs. What do we do, we all ask, about what's in our collective memories 
in our unconscious grief or shame or desire for revenge or fear of retribution or injustice or whatever. Given all that, how do we persuade others to do what we think is right, good, reasonable? How do we come to a willingness to change our own minds when it is right to do so? Why do we cling to our own opinions even when it is to our own obvious detriment? I think we do so ultimately because of a deep-seated concern for our own self-preservation, concern for our physical safety or that of our families, concern for our own personal power and freedom to act, concern for the potential or actual loss of our goods or property or positions or possibilities, concern for honor and esteem, concern for our financial well-being. Any of that can be right and proper, and any of that taken to an extreme can become a dangerous quest for power over others and an attempt to retain power at others' expense. Once, as editor of a magazine, I wrote an article called Power and Poverty. It was accompanied by pictures of the fabulous Houston skyline as well as pictures of the run-down row houses of Houston's impoverished poor. It was when I was working at the university, and this was to be published in the university's alumni publication. Before it went to press, I remember there was a big discussion in the vice president's office with the alumni director about the danger of alienating some of the alumni who were donors to the university. Money. Just comment unfavorably on power and you mess with the sources of money. To the university's credit, the article was published, and though there was a bit of a dust-up about it with some alumni, there was actually an increase in giving that year to the university, as many alumni approved of truth-telling as the mission of any university. Truth-telling and money, power and poverty, politics and principle. All of these are as urgently in the forefront of our society's consciousness today as I've ever seen them. The current president of the United States said this week, what side are you on? I say today that whatever side you're on, you might consider how you go about changing minds by changing hearts. To make a major shift requires an emotional shift, a change of heart. We have to be able to feel something, not just think about it. We have to find that common humanity that my uncle had had to feel for the Japanese and that my fellow office mate had to find in me and I in him. Most of us, of any political persuasion, rally to help our neighbor when we actually see and feel her humanity, his hurt, her need, how do we come to really see and feel that for those we disagree with? How do we bring heart into our current heated atmosphere? I do not pretend that I have all or even any absolute answers about how to do that. I suspect it always depends on the circumstances of every individual situation what is needed. But I'm sure that being reminded of some of the fundamental principles we have all long agreed to is important, such as the real meaning of honor and honesty 
of the meaning of fact in an age of relativity. I think, too, that it's important to remember as broadly as possible not only the very real periodic suffering of blacks, Native Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Mexican Americans, and others, but also of rural whites who have often been, and some are now, nearly as impoverished financially, intellectually, and culturally as anyone else. During the 60s, during the hottest part of the Civil Rights Movement, just before the March on Selma, a group of young adults, some black, some white, were brought together in Houston for a weekend retreat to try to bring about changed minds and hearts. A couple of radical black activists from Chicago were brought in to participate with the young people along with a couple of local ministers. I was asked to come along to observe and participate if I chose. It was a lively, often contentious weekend where truth-telling was often painful. But one incident of that weekend has stayed in my mind. I don't remember how the discussion led up to this point, but one of the local black young people was saying to one of the whites, harshly, angrily, Man, you never had soul food, collard greens and pickled pig's feet. You've been missing out on our culture. One of the black Chicago activists turned to the black local speaker and said to him sternly, You ever been to an opera or to a museum? Or, let's see, know what existentialism is? That's culture, man, and you've been missing out on that. That's what we are demanding that we get to share in, that culture. Then one of the white local young people spoke up quietly and said very gently, I've never been to an opera either or a museum. I don't know what existentialism is. I never had pig's feet, but I do love collard greens. <laughs> I remember the sense of warmth that flooded all our hearts as we all realized something about our commonness at core. Finding common ground, common heart and mind. Heart involves compassion and inclusion and willingness to share, to forgive, to overcome not only prejudice and injustice, but also to overcome the lingering scars, the traces of resentment, revenge, assumption, entitlement, and all the rest. These past few years, I, like many of you at times, have been outraged, discouraged, fearful, unmotivated, depressed, What's happening to our country, to the world, to us? At times, I can't wrap my mind around it. So again and again, I've been brought back to my heart, my own experiences, my own history and sense of history, as I dare to contemplate the future. I'll close with one last incident. I've mentioned this before, I think, in another podcast I was a little girl, and I was with my mother and some other women at a neighbor's house. The neighbor, a white woman, 
there weren't any blacks in our little rural community then. This woman was away in hospital, maybe having another baby. She already had a whole bunch of kids. The house was an old frame house. The front porch steps were falling in. The living room was blackened with soot from years of smoke from the fireplace. The mud chimney was crumbling, and the place was filthy. I guess I turned up my dainty little nose and said something under my breath, because I remember my mother saying to me sternly, Don't you judge. You never have any idea what another person's situation is really like. So you get busy and help get this cleaned up as much as we can before she comes home. She needs us. She needs us. We need each other today, all of us. Poor, rich, righteous, wrong-headed, and wrong-hearted. We all need each other. Let us indeed bind up each other's wounds and get on with redemption, overcoming the past and creating a future closer to the light, closer to heart, as open-minded as we can be. Thank you for listening. This is Glenda Taylor. Join me again another time on the One and All Wisdom Podcast. Thank you.